Our Father, we delight to sing those words, great is your faithfulness. And behind those words are the majestic glory of who you are, your character, your power, your nature. You alone could be faithful and guarantee your promises because you are alone are the creator of the ends of the earth. In you alone is infinite power and wisdom, knowledge and sovereignty. In you alone can we believe and put our absolute trust. Everything else in this world and in our lives is subject to change, but you do not change. You are the same, our Lord Jesus Christ, yesterday, today, and forever. And you are unchallenged in your promises. And so you can be faithful to us and we can put our trust in you completely. Help us to do so. And encourage our hearts this morning as we continue to look at this vision that you gave to the Apostle John to write down for us and for your people throughout the ages. Open our eyes to see these wonderful truths and lead our hearts to worship you and to trust you, to live for you, to delight in you, find our comfort in you, our hope in you, our joy in you. And we pray these, matchless, these things in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, we'll go ahead and again and open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. This is now uh, part 3 of our look at the latter half of this chapter and of the vision that God gave to the Apostle John. And we have been taking our time, and I don't know about you, but I'm in no particular hurry because this is a comforting place to live for a little while in light of all of the the doom and the destruction and the holy justice of God that is to come upon the earth, which we'll spend plenty of time looking at. But here is a place of rest, as it were, a place of refreshment as we consider the end of it all for believers, as we consider the outcome of our faith, as we consider the fact that whatever is endured in this world is temporary, but the promises that are ours are forever and the enjoyment of them. And so we are going to come back again this morning to this vision that God gave to John of those who are currently in his presence. Those who came out of great suffering, great tribulation, great turmoil, great distress, but are now enjoying their eternal rest in Christ. So we are going to look at this morning, uh, verses 14 primarily... And the first part of 15, and then we'll finish it up uh, next week. But let me begin by reading uh, the passage. So beginning in verse 9, the beginning of this particular vision, all the way down to verse 17. And then we'll look at it again together. Beginning in verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues... Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And will guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. A precious promise and a precious truth that the apostle was given sight of and is recorded again for us. Now we begin to note last week the second part of this vision that was given to the apostle John. Namely the explanation of salvation. 
the explanation of salvation. And that brought us then into this interaction that John the Apostle has between one of the elders and himself. Beginning in verse 13, he said, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And we noted this is an interesting way that God has, all the way beginning in the garden when he called out to Adam and Eve and asked where they were and asked if they had eaten from the tree of the, of the knowledge of the fruit, good and evil. And when he spoke to Cain, again, asking him a question, not because God is looking for information, but this is a method employed by God in which he elicits out of the sinner a particular focus on an issue and very often in the prophets on a vision as it is here. So in other words, by asking the question to what plainly John did not have the answer for himself, he's bringing emphasis to what he sees. He's, he's shining a spotlight on it, if you will. It's a divine tool then for the purpose of emphasis. And the elder asked then two questions, two things that he wants to highlight. Who are they? Who are they that are in this crowd? And where did they come from? And then he supplies the answer in reverse order. And so he answers first, the second part of that question, where they came from. And so, in verse 14, he says, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And we briefly touched on this last week. Let me just remind you that this is to say, these are the ones who came out of that unique time in the history of the world at the end of the age in which the destruction and the suffering of God's people is going to be at its greatest and the destruction that God brings upon the world as an act and a means and a demonstration of his holy justice will be meted out, will be unleashed. It is the great tribulation. Uh, I'm not going to repeat all of that, but I do want to emphasize and remind us this is not speaking, as some want to argue, of general tribulations that Christians go through throughout the ages. This is not the general troubles of life, the general suffering that the church has experienced because of their faith in Christ. This is a distinct period that is marked out as such throughout Scripture. It is here emphasized with the article, The Great Tribulation, and then that descriptor, great, that adjective, tribulation, is just to say this is a particular time marked out by God in which the suffering that will be experienced on the world will be great. This is a time anticipated by Daniel the prophet. And I'm just going to remind you of a few of the ways that God has already prepared us for this statement. In Daniel chapter 9, if you'll remember, is the vision that was explained to Dan, given to Daniel and then explained to Daniel of the, the final uh, purposes of God for the nation of Israel under the 70 weeks. The 69 weeks have already been accomplished. There is the final week that is yet to be accomplished. It is that final week, seven-year period that we know as the tribulation period, and that is the period that is recorded for us in Dan, or Revelation. In verse 27 of Daniel chapter 9, he says, And he, speaking of the prince of the people who is to come to destroy the city and the sanctuary, and we noted when we covered that, is what happened in 70 A.D. with the destruction of Jerusalem. And then we come to verse 27, where we noted after that there is war, desolations are determined, what Jesus referred to as the time of the Gentiles where Jerusalem is trampled under feet. And then we come to verse 27, we meet again now with this prince, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, destruction one that is decreed, it is under the sovereign purposes of God, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And he introduces us to a time there of great destruction, that is to come, and it will be attended with the presence of this one who will uh, enact great abominations. It is further described in chapter 11. We'll come back to this uh, down the road when we get to chapter 13 of, verse, uh, of Revelation. But here I'll just note in verse 31, speaking of what is an historical ruler in the time of the history of the Jews, the intertestamental period, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, here was a precursor of what was going to come in far greater abominations at the end of the age. But here he says, forces will arise 
desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. We have this unique period referred to again in chapter 12. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. This is now looking to the end of the age. This is now looking to the, to the end of the wrapping up of history and God's purposes as it's associated with the nation of Israel. Such never occurred since the nation, there was a nation at that time, and that time your people and everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Those who are not in the book will suffer destruction. In verse 11, he again defines this time. From the time of the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. Now, there's, again, more that we're going to unpack in the future. Let me just summarize to say these are the time periods that are, again, also repeated in Revelation as referring to the final week of destruction. These have not yet happened. It's what's being unfolded for us as we walk through the book of Revelation. Affirmation that that was not filled historically during the intertestinal period comes from the lips of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 24, where this exact terminology given to the Apostle John in this vision is used by the lips of the incarnate Christ. In verse 15 of Matthew 24, again picking up on this time of destruction for the Jews, that will correlate with the destruction and the end of the world just before the return of Christ. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolations, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. In other words, that's yet to come. It hasn't happened yet. It's a time still in the future. And then as he's describing the character of this time and the particular suffering that is going to happen, to the Jewish nation, he tells them to flee from this great abomination. And then he tells them in verse 21, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. In other words, this is a unique time. And you can think of the history of the Jews. You can think of the previous destruction of the temple uh, back in... Uh, the 7th century, or the 6th century, excuse me, B.C. You can think of this kind of destruction and the suffering of mankind, the suffering of nations, and particularly the suffering of the Jewish people, and yet Jesus marks out this time as the great tribulation, as a unique time. It's a suffering that has not yet been experienced. So it is a particular time of suffering and destruction. And again, the Apostle Paul is looking forward to this time in 2 Thessalonians particularly as it's associated with the rise of lawlessness and the revelation of the lawless one, the man of destruction. He says in chapter 2, verse 3, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God, and then he goes on. So this is a time that is to come. This is a time that is future. This is a time of great destruction. This great tribulation is a period of time that will be particular suffering of the Jews, but certainly all who will identify with the God of the Jews, which is Christ revealed, the Messiah of the Jews. It will be executed by the one who is the embodiment, as it were, totally possessed and a tool and under the influence of Satan himself, not merely a demon, but Satan himself, that will oppose and exalt himself against God in the climatic expression of man's rebellion against our Creator. This is the time that he's referring to. And again, it is a time of great suffering, also of God's judgments. In Revelation 16, 18, just to give one example of that, there's, there's again much we'll cover. He does talk about there of even the great reality of earthly destruction. He says, and there were flashes of lightning in verse 18 and sounds and peals of thunder. There's a great earthquake, listen, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth, so great an earthquake was it and so mighty. 
So, so there is in this then the sense of uniqueness, uh, distinction, distinction in terms of a particular act of God, a particular time period in the experience of the earth and the experience of the Jewish nation. And so he identifies who is this crowd. They are those who came out of that time, the great tribulation. They are those who came out of the great tribulation. And so all the more glorious and the reminder this is for God's people that whatever suffering there is on this earth, there is a greater reward. There is a greater hope. And so it is for these and that's what we want to look at next. The second point then of emphasis is not only where they came from, they came out of the great tribulation, but then he describes them in this way. The second part of verse 15, 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And it is for this reason that they are before the throne of God. This is an incredibly wonderful scene, an incredibly wonderful scene. And while, while it is particularly here in this vision applied to this particular group that came out of the great tribulation, it is in reality, too, a picture of what all of those who leave this world and go into the presence of God will experience. It's what it means to be in his presence, to have finished the race, as it were, here uh, on this earth. So it's essential to note, just up front, and we'll unfold this a bit more, that it is Christ and his righteousness that enables sinful man to stand in God's presence and not be consumed. And not be consumed. They are not there for their presence, their righteousness, but they are there because of the righteousness of another. They are there because they have made their garments white in the blood of the Lamb. That's why they're not consumed. And so with this in mind, I want to highlight, and this will take us over the next couple of weeks and to the end of this description of them. I want to highlight four aspects of this identity of this people. They are this. Four, four things, four truths that come out of this. One, the necessity of faith in Christ for cleansing. You get that from this reason. It's this reason that they are there. Secondly, the certainty of cleansing through faith in Christ. They are in his presence. Third, the fruit of that cleansing, that is that they offer worship to him, and the comforts of that cleansing, namely that they find rest and refreshment in the presence of Christ, their shepherd. Let's consider the first then in this description, the necessity of faith in Christ for cleansing. Look again, he says at the beginning of verse 15 that it is for this reason that they are there. It's for this reason they are before the throne of God. What is this reason? Because they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's why they're there. Now this is rich and striking Old Testament in imagery. The immediate background, or some of the immediate background, is God's prophetic word to Judah in Genesis 49, 11, when he said, he washed his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Or God's command to the people to wash their garments when they were coming into his presence at Mount Sinai. It says, let them wash their garments. In other words, coming into the holy presence of God required a kind of cleansing, required a preparation. They didn't just walk in and come near to that holy mountain. But most directly, the imagery comes from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 1. Let me just remind you of that beginning in verse 16. In, in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 1, he is, he, God, through the prophet Isaiah, is addressing the people who are, as he even opens up, alas, a sinful nation. A sinful nation. He is speaking to a people who are weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who have acted corruptly, who have abandoned the Lord, despised the Holy One of Israel, and turned away from Him. He's, he's speaking to a nation who He's preparing to bring His judgments upon. And yet in the midst of highlighting their waywardness and the depth of their corruption, even comparing them to Sodom and Gomorrah, telling him about this distaste, the, the disdain of his soul for the worship that they offer him when it's not matched with their lives and the affections of their heart. But then he gives this most wonderful appeal, showing the heart of God. He says in verse 16, Wash yourself, make yourselves clean 
Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. If you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This imagery then of the need for cleansing, the need for a washing of our garments, both ceremonially and metaphorically, was ingrained in the life of the Old Testament saints. The need for garments to be washed is grounded in the Corollary imagery of our corruption and sinfulness pictured as soiled garments. Isaiah 64, 6, you're used to, you know this one, speaking to Israel. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a what? Like a filthy garment. A filthy garment. A filthy rag something that is unclean. And here he says what is unclean is our righteous deeds. We could picture here then the same indictment of the Lord against the leaders of Israel in Matthew 23. Outwardly, you seem clean. You fast, you tithe, you give, you study the scriptures. But then he says, inside you're full of dead men's bones. You're full of corruption. All of your righteousness, because it is not from a heart that loves God and loves neighbor is a putrid stench in his nostrils. Or we could think of the imagery of Joshua, the high priest, in the vision of Zechariah chapter 3. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, verse 1, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua, he was high priest that year, he was clothed with what? Filthy garments standing before the angel. This is the high priest of Israel. Filthy garments condemned of himself. And he spoke, verse 4, and he said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him again. And he said, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with festal robes. Let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, garments as it were of salvation, garments that were clean, garments that allowed him to be in the presence of God clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And then the Lord called him to faithfulness and ministry. The picture here is simply this, that our sin, our guilt, and our corruption is pictured as filthy garments before the blinding holiness of God's blazing white purity. Think of the transfiguration. In Matthew 17, 2, just listen, I remind you, It's described in this way, he, being Christ, was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. Mark 9 describes the same scene in this way, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, not as a launderer on earth can whiten them. And so the material point, by contrast, to recognize with these who are before the throne is that outside of Christ, We, as they, are clothed in filthy garments. The filthy garments are our moral and spiritual corruption and the stains of our sin. But here's the wonder. They have washed them and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I can remember uh, years ago uh, working, uh, uh, anyway, uh, working, and we were unloading some books. It was uh, in the studios, and we were decorating the set. And we were unloading some books. And one of these books was a hymnal. And uh, someone that I worked with, that we had ongoing conversations. Um, good, but anyway, that we worked with. He opened it up, uh, the hymnal, as we were working. And there was that song, uh, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. A lot of us, it's one of my favorite hymns, and, and for many of you as well. And that was just bizarre to him. I mean, it is a fountain filled with, how gross, how violent, how stupid is that? 
a fountain filled with blood. This is what you Christians sing. What a bizarre and archaic and uh, view of God and salvation. And that's how it is to the world. The idea of a bloody Savior, the idea of a violent and bloody death as the means of our salvation and our hope, the things we delight in. What kind of weird and bizarre people delight in singing hymns to him who hung on the cross, bleeding with a spear thrust into his side? Those who understand why it was that way. Those who understand who was there and what his blood accomplished, that's who. That's the ones that can delight in it. To others, it sounds outside of Christ, bizarre, foolish, silly. But this Old Testament, the Old Testament shadowed this reality through repeated imagery of sacrifice and cleansing by blood. The Old Testament tabernacle and temple made this very clear that God is not approachable without cleansing of sin, without atonement for our sin, and this atonement only came through the shedding of blood. Even the priest who was to stand before God for the people needed to be cleansed from his own sin before he could offer the sacrifice for the sin of his people. He needed to have his sins atoned for by blood. Let me just remind you of one passage in Leviticus chapter 8, verse 30. So Moses took some of the anointing oil. This is when he's anointing Aaron, who was the first high priest, the establishment here of the law and the cultic system. He says here, so Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood which was on the altar and he sprinkled it on Aaron. Again, get the picture of this. What is he sprinkling on Aaron? It's not perfume, it's blood. Blood of a sacrificed animal. Blood of an animal slain, dead before them. And he takes the blood and he sprinkles it on Aaron as he does on the altar and other things. And he says he sprinkled it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him. And he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his son and the garments of his sons with him. He needed to be cleansed by blood. In chapter 17, he gets to the very heart of this, of Leviticus. He says in verse 11, explaining what it is, the significance of this blood that has in the purposes of God cleansing power, and symbolism, he says in verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood represents life. It's lifeblood. It's existence. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. He says in verse 14, as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, you are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is in his blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. It wasn't the physical substance. It was a living thing, a living being, a living creation of God. A living creation of God, even as an animal not with the same moral responsibilities and accountability, but yet was an innocent creature of God in that sense, was to be offered up by the guilty worshiper as an atonement for sin. And God was saying, see the life of this animal, see the life of this beast, see the life of of this which is given as a substitute for you, you are to take its life, symbolized in its blood, now that it's dead. And it is that and that alone which will offer cleansing for your sin. It will make you clean. Now we as Christians can delight in that, in this imagery of robes washed in blood. To say that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That this blood is our peace, this blood is our hope, this blood is our confidence, this blood is our joy. This blood is what we trust in, this blood shed for us by the Holy One. When under the conviction of our sins, we come to Him and are restored, forgiven, made new. And I want you to listen to, just by way of a reminder for us of how this is described in the New Testament and fulfilled in Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, I'm just going to run through some of these. Hebrews chapter 9, after describing the holy place and the most holy place, 
that was atoned for on the day of atonement. He says this in verse 7, but into the second, that is the most holy place, so the, that is the second room as you went into the inner chambers of the tabernacle. You went to the porch, you went to the door, you went to the holy place, candlestick, showbread, altar of incense, you had a curtain separating, and then you went into the most holy place that was entered only once a year by the high priest to offer atonement for sins for the nation. It was there that there was the Ark of the Covenant, the lid of atonement essentially on top of propitiation, where satisfaction was made for the sins of his people. He says, into the second, that second room, only the high priest enters once a year and not without taking what? Blood. Blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit was signifying this, that the way into the holy place had not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. It was a symbol for the present time. It was never able at the end of verse 9 to make the worshiper clean in conscience. But it required blood Verse 22 of nine, uh, Hebrews 9, And according to the law, one may almost say this, All things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no forgiveness unless a life, unless a life is offered in place of the guilty one. Unless a life is offered in place as a substitute for the one who has sinned and committed iniquity and has rebelled against God and bears the guilt of filthy garments. But what was shadowed for over 1,400 years in the tabernacle and then the temple was accomplished in the appearing of Christ. Look again at verse 11 of Hebrews 9. And when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of bulls, blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered into the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have defiled the saint, uh, had been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit who offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Chapter 10, verse 23 of 9. It was necessary then for the copies of the things in heaven to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things with the better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. But he offered himself in the middle of verse 26 once at the consummation of the ages. He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again, the law is a shadow in chapter 10 of good things to come. But they never could make one perfect. That's why they had to be brought all the time, every day and then yearly for the nation. You know, consider this. I, we mention this regularly, but it's good to be reminded all the time. Why do we not bring a goat to an altar up here and take turns sacrificing it? Why aren't me and Jason up here as butchers taking your sacrifices and offering up and sprinkling it on the pews? Why aren't we doing that? Because it's been made. The sacrifice, when we take the table, we remember that there was a sacrifice once for all that has been made. Divine justice has been satisfied. The blood that cleanses forever has been spilled. There's no longer a sacrifice for sins. There's no longer anything to bring for those who have trusted in Christ. He says, by those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. It is impossible for, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But then Christ comes in fulfillment of the promise and says, he offers his life to do the will of God in the flesh. And part of that ultimate doing the will of God was to lay down his life as a sacrifice and atonement for the sins of his people. 
By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. For by one offering he was perfected he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now where there is forgiveness of sin there is no longer an offering of sin. So this becomes a glorious picture and a glorious statement. Why are they before the throne of God? Because they have washed their robes, their filthy Robes, their robes of guilt and condemnation and shame and pollution have been removed and taken away by the blood of the Lamb so that they could be in their presence. And that's you, beloved Christian, if you've trusted in Him. If you haven't, then that is not you. And so from that, I want to just make two points, and we're going to end on this point then this morning. And we'll, we'll go quicker through some of the others. But I just want to make two points of application on this. And one is for us to recognize. One is this, first. To recognize the necessity then of sanctification with justification. Now let me explain that. The necessity then of sanctification with justification. These are distinct but inseparable realities to genuine salvation. Justification is the legal declaration by God of being counted righteous in Christ. It is Christ's righteousness imputed to our account through faith. That's second Corinthians, many places. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God imputed our sin to the sinless one in whom there was no sin. And by faith in that act, he imputes to us the righteousness of the perfectly obedient one, the Son of God, who fulfilled the righteousness of the law for us. That is justification by faith. That is justification by faith that is guaranteed and proven in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the gospel. That is what Paul said. Just let me remind you of these words in Romans chapter 4. For our sake, or 20, verse 23, now not for our sake, uh, not only for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, speaking of Abraham, who believed and it was credited as righteousness. But for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus from our Lord from the dead and who, do, was, who was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's justification by faith. Sanctification is, covers a few things. Our position, how we are set apart and declared because of the declaration of our righteousness, we are called saints. Holy ones. Why? We're not holy, but because of Christ. And in Christ, we are called saints. That's the position of our sanctification. There is the progress of sanctification. And that is that part of the regeneration and the work of the indwelling spirit in the life of those who have been justified, where he continually shapes and molds them to the image of Christ, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. They are shape, getting rid of the pollution that remains in the flesh and making them more like Christ. And then there is the end of sanctification, the perfection of it, when we will be conformed to the body of his glory. Sin is done away forevermore. And we experience the fullness of our relationship with him in salvation. But that middle part there, the progress of revelation, is the evidence of our being declared righteous. And we cannot separate these two, otherwise there is great deception. And I'll tell you in a sec why we're seeing that here. But Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. No one will see the Lord. And so here is the point I want to emphasize up front. That this reality of justification, of being counted righteous in Christ, of having been washed and have, so that we have white robes that are clean and able to stand in the presence of a holy God is authenticated and verified by spiritual fruit of regeneration. Listen to what Jesus said. You'll remember these words in Luke 18, the parable of the sower. But the seed in the good soil, as opposed to the examples of bad soil that did not bear fruit, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and a good heart, hold it fast, and bear fruit with 
perseverance. Now again, why do I mention that? Well, because in Revelation, in the great marriage supper of the Lamb, in Revelation 19, how are the saints described, those who will be before the throne, those who will be offering this worship? He says this, The Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready, verse 8, Revelation 19, and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Their clothing, they're being ready for this great consummation of the marriage between the Lamb of God and His bride, the church. That bride is ready. She is bright and clean. She is made beautiful, it says, through her righteous deeds. Is that what he's... So then the fruit then of this, having washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, is a people who demonstrate that they belong to the Lamb and have washed their robes by living lives and having the fruit of that righteousness they've received. Obedience, following the shepherd, following Christ. The righteous deeds of the saints in Revelation 19 are the fruit of the righteousness given to them here in robes that made them white, that are made white in the blood of the Lamb. So the righteous deeds of the saints is the proof of their salvation, not the cause or the foundation of it. And that's the simple point. But you can't separate those two. Nobody who is before the throne in this picture, who has washed their robe and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, will not also be marked by those white robes by righteous deeds and acts in life and following Christ. In other words, you can't divide up Christ and say, I'm going to take the Christ that washes my robes, but I'm not going to follow the Christ that makes demands on my life. You can't separate those two things. He is the Lord. Salvation includes both. If someone is justified, then they are in the process of being sanctified. Uh, Many places, but we'll let that stand. James chapter 2, I will just mention, as we're familiar with, there is a dead faith, an empty faith, an unsaving faith that does not save, and it is marked by the fact that it does not produce works. So here they are, these first, I would note then, that there is no salvation. You cannot say that I am saved, I believe in Jesus, and therefore my sins are forgiven, I'm justified, but I have no desire daily in my life to walk righteously and to follow him. You can't have it both. If you are justified, if you are those who have washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white, then you are those who are clothing yourself and preparing yourself to be with your husband, with Christ the Lamb, through a life that models obedience, trust in him, confession of sin. And then it leads to the second point, and this will bring us into the table, and they go together. But let me ask you this first. In what are you trusted, trusting to be accepted into the holy presence of Christ? Why do you think that you can stand before the throne of God? If you get those answers backwards, then you don't understand the gospel. That's the point. If you start with what I do, my righteous acts, then you don't understand justification and you don't understand its connection to a transformed life. But let's then go into the second part. And that is this, the necessity then of having faith in Christ. The first was then that there's the necessity then of understanding justification and sanctification are inseparable. Secondly, the necessity then of having faith in Christ This comes about through faith. It is through their faith that they endured to the end. It is through their faith that they were preserved. It is through faith that they did not love their life even unto death. It was through faith that they submitted themselves to whatever came as a result of their trust in Christ, even if it meant their death. It is through faith that they could have the confidence that they were made right and reconciled to God. But let me again just warn here by noting what faith is not. Faith is not the assumption of salvation. It's not the assumption of salvation. It's not the assumption of salvation because you believe that the facts of the gospel are true, that Jesus really is the Son of God, that he really did die, he really did rise, and therefore that is enough to get me into heaven. It's not merely intellectual assent. 
It's not merely agreeing with these things in your mind. It's not merely affirming them as true and to say, well, Buddha's not true. Muslim Islam isn't true. That Mormonism isn't true. I believe this is true and therefore I'm saved. That's not enough, as we'll consider. Faith is not moments of strong emotional response alone. It's not coming and saying, you know, I, I, just, I just really love church and I, they, we sang this song this morning and I, I had tears. I had, to, I had to keep wiping my tears because it so emotionally impacted me. And then to live as if the truth seen was not to be a transforming reality in your life. Faith is not a matter of believing the facts, affirming them, and you must appropriate these truths for yourself. It must be demonstrated in life. Faith, then, is an active embrace of Christ, a movement of the will to trust Him, to rely on Him, and to follow Him in obedience. Too many people build houses of sand, and when the winds of destruction and judgment come and testing, when the wind of of God's divine evaluation comes, that house will fall. And great was its fall, Jesus says. Great will be its fall. So it's important to understand this. And to examine your heart, I want to lay that before all of us and to not make assumptions. Have you come to understand that you are a sinner in general and part of a category of sin? Sinners, is that the level of your faith? People are sinful. I know I'm not perfect. And I know that Jesus died for sins. Therefore, I believe that that's true and I'm fine. Or have you yet come to understand the reality of your own pollution? your own guilt, your own sin, to feel the separation that your own personal corruption has brought between you and God so that you are compelled to trust Him, compelled to turn to Christ, to to rely on what He has accomplished in His person and in His work. Do not think you can believe and live a generally moral life by your own standards and think that you are a pretty good religious Christian purpose person. That's not enough. That will not end in you being found before the throne of God, having washed your robes white in the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb. The full weight of the holy justice of God's law and holy hatred of sin was placed on Christ. So if you think within yourself and you reason within yourself that there is one speck of goodness in yourself outside of Christ, then you don't understand the gospel. You have not yet washed your robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. If you think there is one speck, one glimmer, one spark, one flash of the light of divine goodness in you of your own outside of Christ, then you have not yet understood the cross and what was demonstrated there through a bloody Savior offering himself up as a sacrifice for sin, satisfying alone the one who could satisfy the holy justice of God. You must be able to say with Paul, not in the fullness of understanding, we're all growing in that, but with absolute sincerity and comprehensive reality to be able to say with Paul, I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is my flesh. You have to be able to say that or you don't have faith. And this is the warning I want to give because not everybody is going to end up who thinks they will in this crowd. You must be able to say, wretched man that I am, who will save me from the body of this death? The blood of Jesus Christ. Alone by which I can wash my robes and make them right and be found righteous in the sight of God because I stand in him. Only there will you understand the cross and Christ's death. Only then will you understand the glory, the sweetness, and the amazement of grace in that statement. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And if you are outside of Christ, if that is not true of you, if that is not true of you, if that is not a reality on which you build your life, not merely here, but Monday morning when you wake up, and Tuesday morning when you wake up, and Wednesday morning when you wake up, and Thursday morning when you wake up, and Friday morning when you wake up, and Saturday morning when you wake up, that you then come to celebrate and be encouraged in and refreshed in and strengthened in on Sunday morning when you come with the community of the saints to do it all again and to trust in Christ and to grow in Him, then you don't yet understand the gospel. But 
The hope is this. What did he say? These are those who have washed their robes. In other words, when they heard the salvation that is in Christ, they believed. And that is always the promise that is held out. You can wash your robe and make it white in the blood of the Lamb. You can be clothed in His righteousness on this condition. That you come to God on His terms. And that is to confess your wretchedness. To confess your helplessness outside of Christ. To confess your sin and all of its ugliness. God sees that and more about you. And to exercise faith. And say, God, forgive me. I am that guilty sinner. I am clothed in those filthy garments. But I want to be clothed in the garments of Christ. And I'm ready to lose my life in this world to gain yours. Will you bring me into his saving grace? When offered in sincerity, God receives everyone who comes to him. And if we ha- you have trusted in Christ, then as we come to this table, we celebrate. And we'll look at this next week. The certainty that you stand secure in him, both now and forever. That your sins have been forgiven and that you have confidence. And that even in the moments of great conviction of our sin, we have a Savior who will never cast us away. All whom the Father has given to me will come to me. And then what does he say? And the one who comes to me, I will not turn away, but I will raise them up on the last day. This is the will of my Father who has sent me. This is the promise that if we trust in him, we can stand in the presence of an infinitely holy and blazingly pure God and counted righteous, holy, and blameless with great joy. Let's bow our heads and prepare for the table. Father, we thank you for the truths of the gospel that you have not given to us sparsely, hesitatingly, but you have laid them out in such glorious fullness in your word and through your work throughout the history of man so that we could have confidence, so that we could have hope, so that we could have clarity, so that we could not be deceived but know the truth, so that we could have forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with the God who created us and whose image we bear. And that image can be restored in Christ. So I pray as we come to this table you would impress upon our hearts, Holy Spirit, that you would enlighten our eyes, that you would give us understanding to lay hold of, to behold, to experience in vital faith and reality the truth of the gospel. And Jesus Christ, whose blood makes us clean, whose life was laid down for us, that we could be counted righteous in your presence. Would you impress these truths upon us? Would you give us understanding? And for those who are outside of Christ, and and some who even know that they are outside of Christ, would you be so merciful and kind to them to this day cause them to be born again, to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, to abandon everything that they're hoping in now, to hope only in him who is the Savior who has died and risen and is returning. Remind us and refresh our hearts by faith in these elements. We commit ourselves to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.